having a good fast, nice and easy fast. And I just want to encourage you in the fast to look at it as an opportunity. Um, the focus is not to be on the denying of ourself as we fast. The focus is to be on elevating our spirits and being closer to God. So I just encourage you to, as you finish out the remainder of the fast, to do it in that spirit. Let's have a word of prayer. Elohe Avraham, Elohe Yitzhak, Elohe Yaakov, B'Shem Yeshua, Meshikainu, God of Abraham, God of Isaac, and God of Jacob, in the name of Yeshua, our Messiah. Abba, we come to you, Lord, truly with humbled hearts. God, that you, the creator of the universe, Lord, provide a day to atone for all our shortcomings, our mistakes, and our sins. And God, we are grateful, Lord, that you've provided final atonement through Yeshua, the Messiah. And Father, we give you praise and glory and honor and adoration this day. Receive, Lord, our prayers. Lord God, receive our hearts cry. Lord, to you this day, and we ask it, Peshem Yeshua, and God's people said, Amen. I'm sure that each person that makes an effort to come out to keep Yom Kippur and goes through the rigors of a fast um, understands the gravity of what's at stake. If you think about it and reflect for a moment, a day of atonement that God has on his divine calendar, a day to cover the sins of mankind, the sins that separate them from him. Yom Kippur and what it represents is very, very important. And according to tradition, God opens two books on Rosh Hashanah, the book of life and the book of death. And they say that God will immediately write the names of those who are righteous in the book of life and the names of those who are wicked in the book of death. They also say that most people will, fall in, will not fall into either category. Therefore, according to the rabbis, Rosh Hashanah begins the Yamim Hanorim, the days of awe. And this 10-day period between Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur is when we can examine ourselves and God is going to look at our self-examination, our sincerity of repentance, and he's going to judge whether or not our names will in fact be inscribed in the book of life at the end of the 10 days. Well, so our Jewish people all over the world are going through this day, many wondering how they're faring. Will their name be written in the book of life? Will their good deeds outweigh their bad? Will they turn up on the right side of God's ledger? Well, tradition is nice, But it's not the observance of tradition that will provide assurance of atonement that the human spirit longs for. It is what God has spoken about the subject and his instructions regarding it. Why? Because sin separates us from our creator and that is a big deal to God. He loves us and he loves us too much to allow us to be separated from him. Vayikra chapter 23, I want to read the passage that pertains to the Day of Atonement. In verse 26, it says, The Lord said to Moshe, the tenth day of the seventh month, 
is the day of atonement. Hold a sacred assembly and deny yourselves and present a food offering to the Lord. Do not do any work on that day because it is the day of atonement when atonement is made for you before the Lord your God. Those who do not deny themselves on that day must be cut off from their people. I will destroy from among their people anyone who does any work on that day. You shall do no work at all. This is to be a lasting ordinance for the generations to come wherever you live. It is a day of Sabbath rest for you, and you must deny yourselves. From the evening of the ninth day of the month until the following evening, you are to observe your Sabbath. One rabbi said, among the things that one must realize is the fact that man has been radically altered as a result of Adam's sin. A great change took place, transforming both man and his world to a large degree, entailing many things and having many effects. That sin, the sin of Adam, changed mankind forever and changed the world. Baruch Levine, a Jewish scholar and theologian, wrote this, Proximity to God was inherently dangerous for both the worshiper and the priest, even if there had been no particular offense to anger him. The favorable acceptance of the Olah, the burnt offering, signaled God's willingness to be approached and served as a kind of ransom or redemption from divine wrath. How many of us have thought of Yom Kippur as dangerous business? Probably not so much. As we read it and go through, we are, we're in a nice, safe building with air conditioning and heat and lights, and you're in a comfortable seat. But we're not the Kohen Hagadol either. Can you imagine being the one that has to go into the Holy of Holies before God's very presence. That would be a different story, wouldn't it? Perhaps we might be a tad bit nervous standing before the Supreme King of the Universe. And it is in that spirit that we must say, what God do I need to do according to your word to assure that I am in fact in right standing with you. In 2 Chronicles 7.14, it says this, If my people who are called by my name humble themselves, pray, seek my face, and turn, Teshuvah, from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven, will forgive their sin, and heal their land. The key to repentance is to seek God's face, not God's faculties, God's hand, not God's handout, God's presence, not his presence. And that's what repentance is. It's not just turning away from something, but it's turning to someone. And the goal of Yom Kippur is that we would turn our heart's affection back to God. Many things come into our lives through the course of a year. And in that year, sometimes our hearts get sidetracked from the most important thing. And God has this season of time that we would turn our heart's affection 
back to God and God alone. God is not vague in giving us instructions. Rather, he is crystal clear. When his instructions are followed, we can have assurance that he will do what he promised. In this case, he will atone for sin. The only way we can have assurance of atonement is if we do atonement God's way. Once a year, it says in Shemot 30 and 10, once a year, Aharon shall make atonement on its horns. This annual atonement must be made, must be made with the blood of the atoning sin offering for the generations to come. It is most holy to the Lord. That's what God says. That atonement must be made with the blood. Must be. Only atonement God's way can bring assurance. Vayikras 17 and 11 says, For the life of a creature is in the blood, and I have given it to you on the altar to make atonement for yourselves. For it is the blood that makes atonement because of the life. In the Sonsino Babylonian Talmud in Yoma 5a, it says this, Does the laying on of the hand make atonement for one? Does not atonement come through the blood, as it is said? For it is the blood that makes atonement by reason of the life. Does the waving make atonement? Like the ultra-Orthodox will do this day by waving a chicken over their head. Is it not the blood which makes atonement as it is written? It is the blood that makes atonement by reason of the life. Surely atonement can be made only with the blood as it says, for it is the blood that makes atonement by reason of the life. Baruch Levine, who wrote a commentary for the JPS on the book of Leviticus, said this, expiation by means of sacrificial blood rites is a prerequisite for securing God's forgiveness. As the rabbis have expressed it, ein kapara el meaning there is no ritual expiation or the removal of sin except by means of the blood. Because if we want assurance of atonement, we have to do atonement God's way. Also, Jacob Neusner if you're familiar with his writings, wrote so much and is a prolific writer, um, writing and commenting on the Jerusalem Talmud, said this, 40 years before the destruction of the temple, think about the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem, it was destroyed in 70 CE, 40 years prior to that, The western light went out. The crimson thread remained crimson. And the lot for the Lord always came up in the left hand. They would close the gates of the temple by night and get up in the morning and find them wide open again. There's four signs that it gives there. I'm only going to really address one today. Our rabbis taught during the last 40 years before the destruction of the temple, the lot for the Lord did not come up in the right hand, nor did the crimson-colored strap become white, and that's the one we're going to focus on, nor did the western 
most light shine in the doors of the temple. They would open by themselves. And that's recorded for us in the Babylonian Talmud as well. So it's in the Jerusalem Talmud and the Babylonian Talmud. So I want to highlight the crimson colored thread or cloth. It was tied to the Azazel, the scapegoat. The one that was sent off into the wilderness. The sins of the people were confessed over this goat. And it was sent off into the wilderness. And there was a crimson thread tied to this goat. And that crimson thread, according to tradition, always turned white. Right? To go along with the verse that though their sins be as scarlet, they will be as white as snow. And it always turned white except for the last 40 years before the temple was destroyed. So from 30 CE to 70 CE, it always remained crimson. Now this is recorded for us again in the Talmud. The Talmud, the Jewish source for all halakhic rulings and instructions the place where every Jew goes to get instructed on how to keep Yom Kippur. Yeshayahu, Isaiah 1.18 says, Come, let us reason together, says Adonai, though your sins be as scarlet, crimson, they shall be as white as snow. Though they be red like crimson, they shall be white as wool. The clear indication is that the yearly atonement achieved through the typical Yom Kippur observance was not being received as usual by Adonai. Atonement was needed to be gained some other way. Who or what would now provide atonement for Israel? Well, If we want to walk out of the temple today and have an assurance that all our confessions and repentance, our prayers have been effective, the scriptures are clear that either the blood of the goat had to be shed and brought into the Holy of Holies to be sprinkled on the ark cover, or like the prophets declared, the Messiah would come to rescue and redeem Israel by his own shed blood making a final once and for all atonement. That's what the prophets declared. The Jewish prophets said that there's going to come a time where there is no way to make atonement for our Jewish people. But don't be discouraged. God will send Mashiach and he will come and he will provide atonement for us. Which leads me to my second point, Messiah Yeshua. He is our assurance of atonement. What did the Jewish nation do in 30 CE to merit such a change on Yom Kippur? Anyone recall what happened in around 30 CE that made the difference from their Yom Kippur offering being regularly received to it never being received again? Yes, I recall there was the Mashiach who came to earth and walked into that very temple and said, I am that I am, has sent me, and I am the one to come, and I will die and be buried and rise again to pay the penalty for the sins of my people, Israel. That's something. 
I don't know if you noticed in the liturgy that we said today, the Yom Kippur liturgy, how many times it referenced resurrection. We must have said it 12 times already. Many Jewish people recite that every year. They don't even realize what they're saying. And if you talk to them about being resurrection or the resurrection, they think it's some type of fairy tale, yet it's laden throughout the Jewish liturgy. So would it be not logical that the Mashiach of Israel, who said he would lay down his life for us, would be the first one to be risen from the grave? You see, this event brought a transference of atonement no longer achieved through the two goats as offered on Yom Kippur. Like an innocent Passover lamb, the Messiah was put to death, though no fault was found in him. But unlike temple sacrifices or Yom Kippur events, where sin is only covered for a time, The Messiah's sacrifice comes with the promise of forgiveness of sins through faith in what God has done in giving us the Messiah. We get into and have that atonement applied to us, but not just for a year, for all time. For it says in Daniel chapter 9 in the 24th verse that when the Mashiach would come, he would put an end to sin. The end to sin's penalty upon mankind. That's what Yeshua did. You see, the mechanism providing forgiveness of sin changed around 30 CE in the coming of Yeshua. This was to be such a shock and a departure from what Israel was doing year in and year out that God was preparing us through the prophet Yeshayahu when he wrote this. See, God knew that this is going to be a new paradigm. First, could I tell you, let's be real. First of all, settle in. We're going to be all day fasting with each other. And just hear what God is saying. There was going to be a new paradigm, and there was a new paradigm regardless. Do you know rabbinic Judaism is a new paradigm from biblical Judaism? Biblical Judaism was centered around the temple in Jerusalem. All the animal sacrifices, all the koanim, all the rules and the regulations that we read week in and week out in Torah have everything to do with biblical Judaism. But they have very, very, very little to do with rabbinic Judaism. Rabbinic Judaism is so different. It's a new paradigm in comparison to biblical Judaism. But God, knowing that there was going to be any more temple, was preparing our people through the prophets. And he was telling the prophets, showing them things hundreds of years in advance to prepare them for that exact time. Matter of fact, Daniel's prophecy in chapter 9 tells us the exact timing of when Messiah would come to the earth. And Yeshua came at exactly that time. And here, Isaiah says this, who has believed our report? Say believed. There was a new paradigm coming. 
And that paradigm was going to be based on believing what God would do. Who has believed our report? Because it is a pretty fantastical report. And whom has the arm of the Lord, a reference to the Messiah, who has the arm of the Lord revealed? He is despised. Who? This arm of the Lord, this Messiah. Has not Yeshua been despised even by our own people? He is despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. Come on, as a Jewish person, what are we told about Yeshua? Uh-uh, he's not for us. No, don't, don't, don't look at him. Don't see, hide. Hide from that one. The prophet foretold this. He was despised and we, the Jewish people, did not esteem him. Surely he has, he, the one we despise, surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But, even though that's what we thought, this is what the prophet says, but he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. We have all turned everyone to his own way. We have all sinned. That's what this day is about. We all recognize our mistakes and shortcomings and sins. And the Lord has laid on him, the Messiah, the iniquity of us all. That's the new paradigm the prophet was preparing Israel for. When you make his soul an offering for sin, isn't that something? He's talking about the Messiah in this passage. When you make the Messiah an offering for sin, he shall see his seed, he shall prolong his days, and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. He shall see the labor of his soul and be satisfied by his knowledge, my righteous servant. Who is righteous but God alone? My righteous servant shall justify many. Yeah, I'd say, Rabbi, why not justify all? Because it's contingent on those who believe. He justifies all who believe in him. For he shall bear their iniquities. Friends, God could not have left us a clearer message. God knows that's a fantastical message. But can I tell you something? Rabbinic Judaism is a fantastical message as well. Contrived by men. Nice, beautiful. But it's not what God prescribed. It's like, can you imagine to go to God, the creator of all, and say, God, listen, I know you're pretty good at this, but I have a better way. Can I just tweak a couple of things? 
I don't think so. <laughs> I don't think we would dare to talk to the Holy One like that. We would be in awe of his mighty power and his mighty presence. Because God is all-knowing. He's all-wise. She's the beginning from the end. And he said that he, the Messiah, will bear our iniquities. In 1350, Rabbi Moshe Cohen Ibn Crispin of Cordova and Toledo in Spain strongly disagreed because the common, well, I'm not going to say the common, the modern interpretation of Isaiah 53 now has been that Isaiah 53, and if you were to ask your rabbi, if you come from a traditional shul, a rabbi, you know, I heard this crazy Meshuggah rabbi tell me that Isaiah 53 refers to Yeshua the Messiah. Oh, don't, listen, don't, don't worry about what he said. Isaiah 53 is speaking about Israel. Well, one of the most famous rabbis, okay, Rabbi Moshe Cohen Ibn Crispin of Cordova, Spain, disagreed because that interpretation came from Rashi. And he made it very clear through his writing that the interpretation that the servant spoken of in Isaiah 53 is the Messiah. And it is, he said, the natural sense and meaning of this chapter. He acknowledged that this interpretation was in harmony with the teachings of all of the rabbis throughout the history of Israel. And he says this, some try to say that the prophet is speaking about Israel here. But this rabbi described those who interpret Isaiah 53 as referring to Israel as those, quote, having forsaken the knowledge of our teachers and inclined after the stubbornness of their own hearts and of their own opinion. I am pleased to interpret it in accordance with the teaching of our rabbis of the King Messiah. This rabbi said, no, Isaiah 53 isn't talking about Israel. And it was never spoken about Israel. It has always been, always referring to the Messiah, to King Mashiach. So Isaiah is telling us that there would be a new paradigm. And friends, we are living in that very time. Do you know, how long have our Jewish people ever gone without temple sacrifice? What was the longest time? 70 years? How many years has it been since that's been able to take place now? 2,000 years? Ever dawn on anyone that something's wrong with that picture? Where has God been? Did he forsake us? Did he leave us? No. He provided a way that he promised that he would through the Messiah of Israel and the Savior of the world, Yeshua. You see, Adonai was letting us know and preparing us for the coming Messiah knowing all the details, and that here in 2017, the Hebrew year of 5778, that no temple would stand, no sacrifice would be available, no blood could be shed in the most holy place and sprinkled on the ark cover like is required for the Day of Atonement. He said that whoever believes his report of the Messiah would have the shed blood of the Messiah atone for his sins.
In the Brit Chadashah, the Messianic Jews, it says, for this reason he, the Messiah, had to be made like them, fully human in every way, in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest, the Kohen Haggadol, in service to God, that he might make atonement for the sins of the people. And then in 9 and 11 it says, But Mashiach came as Kohen Haggadol of the good things to come with the greater and more perfect tabernacle. Rabbi Kalal read this before. When God gave Moshe the pattern for the earthly tabernacle, it was a pattern of something that was in heaven. That in heaven... It was the real tabernacle that God caused a little replica to be made here on earth. And it says that the Messiah entered into the real tabernacle, into the real holy of holies in heaven. Not with the blood of rams and goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer, but with his own precious blood. That could be the only way that God could provide eternal, final atonement for our Jewish people. And it says, How much more shall the blood of Messiah, Mashiach, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Do you know every religion on earth is based on works except one? In rabbinic Judaism, it's mitzvot, that your good deeds outweigh your bad. In all the other religions, there's a to-do list that you must do to earn God's favor because, after all, God's angry. But in the true faith of the scripture, God does the heavy lifting. Man could not provide atonement for himself. Sinful man could not scratch his way and climb the ladder to a holy God. So God came and did it. said that his own arm works salvation for him. God did it for us through the Mashiach. And the last thing I want to talk about today is the history of assurance. You know, there were people, Jewish men, who have believed in Yeshua. And, you know, if I would say, how many people in this room are willing to die for me? Anyone? Oh, no one? No takers? You want to take a bullet for the rabbi? (laughs) It sounds like a good idea until, okay, the the firing squad came up there. You said, well, maybe rabbi, you know, listen, uh, I'd like to help you out, but uh, not today. Not too many takers. So why would men, Jewish men, brought up in Judaism, first century Judaism, why in the world, what would lead them to lay down their life and be murdered in gruesome ways for the sake of one Yeshua HaMashiach, to not deny him and to stay loyal to him? What would propel someone to do that except if they knew it was true. You have Stephen, who was stoned to death in Acts chapter 6 for his faith in Messiah. 
Andrew, one of the first Talmudim of Yeshua. Tradition says that Andrew was executed on an X-shaped stake and would not deny Yeshua. And he was, it was done in the northern coast of Peloponnese. The traditional story says that Andrew refused to be killed in the same manner as Yeshua. And so they murdered him in another way, but he was willing to die for his faith. Polycarp, as with many people in the early centuries, it says that he was probably a Talmud of Yochanan, the Shaliach, and he wrote the Besorah, Yochanan did, in, in, in three letters, and the book of Revelation, and Polycarp was his main disciple. And he was asked to renounce his faith in Yeshua or die. And know what he chose? Death. He was burnt alive. for believing, a Jewish person burnt to death alive for believing in the Jewish Messiah. And that didn't dissuade him. He did it singing Tehillim to God. What would cause someone to do that? Except that they knew that they were on the right track. You would think that that person... responsible for the bloodless and sacrifice-free Yom Kippur that we have today would have a rock-solid assurance, right? Shouldn't you come out of Yom Kippur service and, and be totally feeling good that your sins are atoned for? That should be what happens. But Jew after Jew after Jew come out of Yom Kippur service and a week later already feel stained and dirty and back to the old, same old, same old. I want to close with, this is just profound to me. Because you would think the person responsible for rabbinic Judaism, the founder, the one who said that you don't need blood sacrifice anymore and you just need tzedakah, teshuvah, right? And tefillah would be totally confident on his deathbed that he was going to the right place. Wouldn't you think that? He founded what every Jew does today in shul. Wouldn't you think that he would be of the utmost confidence? Well, we have his last words recorded for us. The founder of rabbinic Judaism, his name is Rabbi Yochanan ben Zachai. And it's recorded for us what he said on his deathbed. And it's recorded for us in Berachot 28b. Hear this. When Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai was sick, his students, his Talmudim came to visit him. When, they saw, when he saw them, he started to cry. He's the founder of rabbinic Judaism. 
his students said to him, Lamp of Israel. (laughs) Right hand pillar. They're really giving him honor. Mighty hammer. Why are you crying? He said to them, If I was brought before a king of flesh and blood who is here today and in the grave tomorrow, if he becomes angry with me, his anger is not eternal. If he imprisons me, it is not eternal imprisonment. If he kills me, it is not a permanent death. And I could appease him with words or bribe him with money. Even so, I would cry. Now that I am brought before the king of kings, the holy one, blessed be he, who lives for all eternity. If he becomes angry with me, it is an eternal anger. If he imprisons me, it is an eternal imprisonment. If he kills me, it is a permanent death. And I cannot appease him with words or bribe him with money. And not only that, but I have two roads before me. One to Ganidan and one to Gehinnom. Let me translate it. One to heaven and one to hell. This is the founder of rabbinic Judaism saying this. And look what he says. And I do not know on which one they will take me. Should I not cry? That's a disturbing thought to me. That the founder of rabbinic Judaism, that all of the Jewish world is following, is unsure that he's going to the right place. And everyone's following him. That's pretty scary. Now, I want to contrast that to a contemporary of Yochanan ben Zakai. Know who was a contemporary of Yochanan ben Zakai? Rav Shaul, who wrote much of the Brit Chadashah. People know him as Paul, but he, his name wasn't Paul, but his name was Shaul. And he was a rabbi, and he studied under the great Gamliel of the Talmud, as did Yochanan ben Zakai. Isn't that amazing? And we don't not only have Yochanan ben Zakai's final words, we also have Rav Shaul's final words. And I want to compare them. I'm going to read to you his final words. Rav Shaul said this on his deathbed. He said, as for me, I am already being poured out on the altar. Yes, the time for my departure has arrived. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. All that awaits me now is the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award me on that day. And not only to me, but to all who have longed for him to appear. Wow. So you have two rabbis on their deathbed. One is confident that he put his faith in the right person. That he chose God's way of atonement. The other one who came up with all these Laws and regulations and writings. This is totally at a loss. I don't know. Shouldn't I cry? Shouldn't I be in terror? One knows and one doesn't. 
Which one would you want to follow? Yeshua even told a parable. He said, be careful who you're following because if you follow a blind man, you might end up in a ditch, right? How many of us would follow a blind person? Not many. You need to follow someone who knows where they're going. Rav Shaul knew. Why did he know? Because it was so crystal clear. All the prophecies, all the words of the prophets pointed to Yeshua being Mashiach. So a simple question to reflect on. We have the whole rest of the day. How about you? I want you to close your eyes and think of your life. How about you? After all the confessions, all the prayers and the repentance, after all the charity and the mitzvot, how sure are you that your sins have been atoned for? And based on what evidence? Tradition? According to Rabbi Ben Zakkai, the founder of Judaism, rabbinic Judaism? Or based on the scriptures, the author being God himself? There would be nothing more tragic than to go through this season and leave not really being sure. Today you can be sure if you choose to believe what God has said. Remember the criteria is who has believed our report? Who has believed it? I mean the evidence, we have the luxury of hindsight. We saw Yeshua came exactly when the Tanakh said he would come. He did exactly what the Torah said Mashiach would do. He did it. Why should it be hard to put our faith in something that God has a proven track record with? I'm going to conclude this message and I want us to pray a prayer together. And I want you to carefully consider Friend, there's nothing more important, nothing more important than your atonement. Your atonement tells us whether you are in right standing with God or not. Don't you think that's pretty important? Jews all around the world do. Jewish people who never go to shul go today. Say, Avinu Malkeinu, our Father and our King. Lord, I truly repent of my evil ways. God, forgive me and have mercy upon me. Father, today, I believe. I believe what the prophets have said. That Yeshua, the Messiah of Israel, came just like the prophets said and atone for my sin. Lord, I believe your report. Lord, I trust in the Mashiach for my atonement and my salvation. Lord, fill me with your Ruach. Fill me with your 
chesed and yerachamim and empower me, empower me to live for him. Amen. Amen. If you said that and you meant it in your heart, God will change your life. Many Jewish people in this room said that prayer and God changed their life. And that burden, that wondering if sin is atoned for is not even a question anymore. We know we're accepted by God because we received his provision of atonement. Amen. Rabbi Carol's going to come. We have a few pieces of liturgy uh, remaining. Um, and these are the big ones, so get ready. You can turn to page 16 of your uh, Maksor. And uh, Rabbi Michael and the team are going <clears> to <throat> lead us in this song, Nachamu Amin, Comfort My People. Uh, throughout the last part of our Torah cycle before Rosh Hashanah, we were in the Haft Road of Consolation. They are known as, and they are words from the prophet Isaiah about comfort. <clears throat> And this song was written to encourage us, as Rabbi Michael shared, that you know, we can speak comfort and encouragement because atonement has been secured through Yeshua the Messiah. And uh, so we're going to sing this song, and then we will go to recite Yeshamnu in the Alkiat. <laughs> 